Hello and welcome to the Vetfolio podcast series, Purring Medicine, brought to you by Merck Animal Health. We're pleased to have you join us as we explore the topic of how to reduce stress in the clinic with our guest speaker, Dr. Margie Shirk. Please note, the information provided in this program is provided solely for the purposes of informing you of current issues important to your practice. Any views or opinions expressed today are those of our presenter and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, or policies of Vetfolio. Now, a little bit about our speaker today. Dr. Shirk graduated from the Ontario Veterinary College in 1982, and in 1986, she opened Cats Only Veterinary Clinic in Vancouver, practicing there until 2008. Dr. Shirk became board certified in feline practice by the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners in 1995 and then recertified in 2004. An active international speaker, Dr. Shirk has authored numerous book chapters and scientific papers and is the North American editor for the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery. Dr. Shirk, we'd like to turn things over to you today. Thanks for joining me in this part of this podcast on how to make your practice more cat-friendly and keep them coming back. We're going to look at how to reduce stress in the clinic, and that stress is for the patient, for the client, and for ourselves. We've got to look at some of the things in the clinic that elicit the fear response and how we can reduce those triggers. These inputs, these triggers, include smells and sounds and sights, sensations, and tastes. We want to learn how to identify and reduce these stimuli and how to approach and handle these frightened, reactive individuals through empathic caring rather than through simply processing our patients. An example I like to use is that of when I myself go to a laboratory to have a blood sample collected. When I go in there, the place is very neat and tidy, everybody's professional, scrubs, nicely hanging pictures, etc. all very nice and professional. I'm asked to have a seat. I'm told to go into a room, at which point I sit down. Everything looks very professional. I feel confident that my sample's not going to be mixed up because the phlebotomist has the stickers. She confirms or he confirms my name, greets me, and the stickers with my name are put on the vials that are going to get my blood. The process, it's all very polite, etc. But when I leave, after that experience, I tend to feel, and I will ask this of you, do you feel cared for or do you feel processed? Despite the fact that everything's been done to the highest level, really good standard of care, under that circumstance, I often feel processed rather than cared for that they actually care at all who I am. So we want to not have that happen to our patients. We would all rather be cared for. And so we want to think about what it is to be a cat and how different their perceptions of the clinic are than ours are. So try to imagine walking on four feet, being able to jump seven times your height, perceiving the world in overlapping clouds of smell, having much better night vision, not being able to see up close, grooming yourself with your tongue, locating sound by rotating your ears, having a tail for communication and for balance, scooping food with your lips and sucking water as if with a straw, having whiskers to sense air movement so you know whether uh, danger is coming as well as how narrow or wide something is. Now add to that when you're in the clinic, the fact that you are a prey animal. And so the whole thing gets to be somewhat scary. 
So the client comes in, the client already is a little anxious, having brought the cat in from home, maybe worried because their cat's sick, and the cat's already anxious because they've been taken out of their home environment, and they walk into this beautiful clinic, and it's professional, and it looks absolutely great, and they're welcomed warmly, and then they get to have a seat, and they get to hear this. And they get to hear this in the background. Or maybe not even the background. Maybe it's right in their faces and somebody's sniffing at the cage. So what is the kitty's experience? Kitty has got to be feel pretty frightened by all of this and will either cower or hiss and become more reactive. In any case, their adrenaline levels rise, their blood pressure rises, and we're off to a bad start right from get-go. Really important that we keep cats separated from dogs. In fact, cats shouldn't even see other cats. So covering the carrier with the towel, never putting the carrier on the floor, but keeping it on the client's lap or on the bench beside the client or even on a little shelf on the wall so that the cat has their own private space in which they can sequester themselves, they can observe but be not seen. Very important. In the previous episode, which hopefully you have listened to and you haven't, I would encourage you to do so, talked about the emotional experience and how emotions shape our behavior on top of what our intellect or our education does. And so within the clinic, we have a situation where if you've got cats reacting and being out of control and once or twice a day, or maybe it's only once or twice a week, but it's wearying on us. And oftentimes, the team member's perception is that cat visits take too long. Their cats are unpredictable. We don't know how to read them. And that makes me worried because there's potential for injury. And maybe it's kinder for the cat if we sedate them. Well, I have somewhat of an issue with that because isn't that just processing your patient? Sure, you're doing everything professionally, but we're still not caring for the patient and trying to perceive what the experience is like from our patient's point of view and removing or reducing those things that make the cat frightened. So clients don't really like how we handle their beloved cat because what we're doing is we're seeing the cat from our point of view and processing or doing what we need to do to care for the cat, to get the sample, to restrain them gently, to examine them. But the client is looking at the cat's face. We're not so much seeing that because we're busy doing. And sometimes in some clinics, people stretch cats or scruff cats. And even just for something as basic as trimming nails or collecting a blood sample. And this is not something that a cat's happy about or a client wants to see. Again, that's about us getting the job done rather than imagining what the experience is for the cat. Fear is the number one cause of undesirable behavior in the veterinary practice. The other cause is pain. And often both are present at the same time. Now, cats learn really quickly. Whether they're frightened or they're relaxed, they're going to learn what to do to not have something that they're frightened of happen again, occur again. It's coping mechanisms, no different than with us. So they learn about what's happening at home, and before they come in, they learn about travel, they learn about what's happening in the clinic, and they anticipate from previous experience. 
a lot of uh, people recommend sedating. If you're going to sedate, then I would recommend that you use things that do not mess up short-term memory because I want them to learn from the pleasant experience, even if they've anticipated from previous experience that it's going to be awful. I want them to be able to learn. That means using something like alprazolam or better yet using something like gabapentin. But in all honesty, I would rather we don't sedate at all and we actually experience things from our cat's our patient's point of view and negotiate with them. So we need to slow down. Let's look at the physical premises and how by adjusting some of the physical inputs that a cat is perceiving can make a huge difference in how uncooperative or defensive they feel they need to be. How can we minimize these threats in the clinic? And these threats, we want to look at them from a sensory point of view. This sense, if we look at the sense of smell, what smells might be threatening to a cat? Well, certainly smells of dogs, the smells of other cats, the smells of people. There may be deodorants and perfumes and our pheromones. Think about all the pheromones that other cats have released in the environment. Then simple physical smells like urine and feces and anal gland secretions, vomit and blood, blood that's been collected, somebody who's bleeding disinfectants and alcohol, the smells of medications, the smells of deodorizer candles and aromatherapy and things that we use to mask smells, as well as the smells of laundry detergent. And in some cases, but mostly not, in some cases, feel away may also be a threat. That's uncommon, but it, it may happen sometimes because it's another cat smell and it isn't similar enough to theirs that, that it's a problem. So how do we reduce those threats? Well, for us, those aren't threatening because, first off, our sense of smell is pathetic compared to that of a cat. But secondly, they're smells that we're familiar with and we know that they aren't threatening. But for a newcomer, they are threatening. So we want to use as much as possible things that don't have an odor. So no deodorizer candles or pleasant smells and things like that. When any disinfectants we're using, we want to try and find the ones that have less of an odor but still are effective. Being very aware of those sorts of things. Examining cats in an area where there aren't dogs or other smells. Getting the urine and feces and away from the cat as quickly as possible. What about sounds? What sounds are threatening? Well, certainly barking, the sounds other cats are making, strange voices, phones, faxes, computer printers, doors, water running, centrifuges, dishwashers, music, traffic, spray bottles. What does a spray bottle sound like? Or what does it sound like when somebody is trying to reassure a cat the way we reassure babies when we go, that's a hiss for a cat, just as a spray bottle sounds like a hiss. So when we use a spray bottle, we want to spray it into a cloth and then wipe the surface with the cloth rather than spraying it onto the surface. We want to, again, mute sounds as much as we can and be aware that the centrifuge or dishwasher and water should be running wherever possible when patients aren't there. Sights. What sights are visual stimuli are frightening? Well, again, dogs, other cats, strange people. Reflections. Reflections on stainless steel. There are 
so many reflections off stainless steel cages. Just using a dimmer switch in the room can help reduce some of those reflections. Putting a towel over half of the cage door will help to reduce the reflections. Making sure that you have a towel on the floor of the cage will also help. But making sure that only half of the door covers, not all of it, so the cat can hide but can also see and anticipate what's coming and, and rather than being in this dark box which is then really scary when somebody opens the door and is silhouetted against the light. Lights, so things being put near faces, an ophthalmoscope, for instance, having people in their faces. Cats don't like people in their faces. Cats don't like staring. Staring, at, in fact, when I examine cats, it's all done from behind. I stay out of their faces at all times. Strange clothing. We wear these weird clothing rather than normal street clothing, and that's alarming. What if we're wearing a mask or we've got gloves on, sudden movements? All of those things we need to be aware of from our patient's point of view. That's caring rather than just getting the job done. Sensations. Cats don't like cold. They don't like wet. They don't like slippery. All of those things can refer to stainless steel as well. So we want to make sure we've got a nice cozy pad down or a towel. Restraint may be painful if they've got crunchy joints, if we're holding them in a way that we're not being aware of how their own anatomy goes and we're restraining them differently. Blood pressure cuff inflating or deflating. Needles are never any fun. Being syringe fed, we're waterboarding them. Cat's mouth only holds half an ml. We need to feed very tiny amounts, which means we have to use smaller syringes so that we're not over pushing that plunger. Cold subcutaneous fluids or injections or stinging injections, those things are very unpleasant. You can give a lot of sub volume with subcutaneous fluids if they are at the cat's body temperature. So just thinking about it from the cat's point of view, taste, what tastes, strange diets, new diets, we should never be changing diets in the clinic because in the clinic they're already frightened. And so they're going to be second-guessing and fearful and apprehensive and hypervigilant when they're in the clinic. Some medications taste terrible too. So those are some things that we want to look at. We want to do essentially a clinic inventory with the whole team thinking about what is scary, what can we do to reduce that threat. And some of the things we can't reduce the actual stimulus, but we simply by being aware of it is empathic and helpful. I've already mentioned keeping cats away from other cats and dogs as well. When we get the cats out of the carriers, never dump or grab or pull or shake them out of the carrier. Let the cat come out on his or her own. Be polite. I want to be polite and respectful to this patient so that over time, instead of it being a holy nightmare when they come in, they've learned that we'll get things done slowly, gently, kindly, and in a caring manner. And over time, their need to defend themselves, their belief that they need to defend themselves decreases dramatically. Be polite. Introduce yourself with a slow blink. We always want to say, this is how you say hello to a cat, a slow blink. You want to let them have a chance to sniff you. And then we want to approach them, for instance, opening a cage door in such a way that they don't feel they're trapped. They feel that they could leave if they want to. If a cat feels that they're in control, they're much easier to work with. The best place to examine or work with a cat is wherever the cat wants to be. And usually that's not a treatment table. Bribery works. Oftentimes cats can be bribed with treats or with canned food or dry food. 
while you're doing things to them. Surprisingly, that's one I wouldn't have thought of. Forceful restraint does not work. Less is always more for cats. Punishment doesn't work. Why would punishment work if you don't live in a society where you depend on each other? That doesn't make any sense. Minimal restraint, towels. Towels are the answer to everything with cats. Face the cat away from you. Keep four to the floor, as it were, at all times. Don't hang them over the edge of a table to collect a blood sample. Let all four feet be on the treatment table when you collect a blood sample. Make sure that if you're using a medial saphenous or saphenous, however you like to say it, that the back end is twisted, but the front end is still sternal. That way the cat feels they're in control. We want to look at using cat signals. Again, using the slow eye blink. Slow eye blink is kind of like a smile for a cat. It's reassuring. We want to vocalize appropriately. Never shh-shh-shh-ing a cat. Instead, we want to use a light voice, a really pleasant voice. And also using the the chirp. If a cat is being self-defensive and it's feeling really frightened and you go to them, you can almost see the sound bubble over their head or the thought bubble saying WTF. We want to look our eyes and look at them sideways if we have to look at something in their faces because it's very threatening for a cat. Cats threaten each other by staring at each other. So we want to mimic, recognize that and not do that. We want to mimic non-threatening behaviors. Never scruff the cat. Don't use clipnosis and never stretch a cat. That is very, very rude in cat language. It's what a threatening cat does to another as they grasp them by the neck. And I'm wanting to build a respectful relationship that's going to last years. And rather than the whole team feeling anxious, knowing that Joey is coming in at 3 o'clock and we're all dreading 3 o'clock, instead that we're going to give Joey the same kind of care we give everybody else rather than trying to do whatever we can to avoid having to see Joey because we don't enjoy that. So we really want to be building a respectful relationship. Reading the signals, the body language, there's all these ritualized signals that have been developed to establish and maintain the structure to keep cats apart from each other and to group those together who belong together when we've got a colony. And those are few and far between. There are far fewer colonies than solitary cats. We want to read the apprehension in the cat's body language and face. And as the cat's ears come down more and their eyes narrow more and they hunch down more, we need to, rather than continuing to approach them, distract them with a toy, with a wand, maybe with dropping some treats in front of them to distract that. And then very quietly and calmly scoop them into a towel and pull them towards us. I examine all my cats on the floor because that way I'm keeping four to the floor. They have the idea that they could still potentially run away. Understanding cat body language is key to helping them feel comfortable, to recognizing when they're starting to not feel comfortable and for us to not interpret it. There's a resource section that goes with this podcast, and I refer you to have a look at some of the images there. You may be well familiar with the Leyerhauser body posture diagram where you see the cat most relaxed in the top left, moving to the right as the cat becomes more aggressive, and to the bottom as the cat becomes more fearful. And what we see a lot of in the clinic are cats who are screaming and their ears are pinned back and their mouth is wide open. Actually, And we misinterpret that as an aggressive cat. It's a self-defensive cat, absolutely. But that cat is terrified. That is the most fearful cat. And so we want to make sure that rather than engage our own adrenal glands in this, that we use our intellect 
to recognize that this cat is terrified and is just saying, stay away, stay away. Oh, dear God, stay away. I hope she gets stays away from me. If you don't stay away from me, I'm going to have to hurt you. Oh, God, I hope she stays away from me. That sort of thing. In the resources, you'll see some images that show feeling subtly threatened, feeling more intensely threatened, feeling very threatened, and how these things, we misinterpret them as being aggressive when, in fact, they're really terrified. The cat who I would feel frightened of, the most aggressive cat, in 33 years I've seen this twice in clinic, and this is a cat who is stalking and who is actually not screaming. His mouth is shut or her mouth is shut, and they're high up on their tippy toes, their tail base is elevated, their ears are stiff and turned laterally, they're approaching and they're staring, and they may mount the subordinate and grasp them by the neck. These are things which interestingly, stiff upright, you know, on their tippy toes, stiff upright limbs, ears turned laterally, approaching, staring. Those are all things we do. So we are perceived by cats as being dominating. Additionally, we are predators. There's no question about it. Then this whole mounting the subordinate, grasping them by the neck just makes things worse. And this is why I say to not scruff, we want to also not be in their faces or staring at them. One more thing I want to say about the client, and that is that, as I mentioned in the previous episode, that they feel maybe feeling guilt. They may be feeling he's going to make me pay for this. They may be feeling how am I ever going to get those pills into her or do whatever treatment it is. So they have all these emotional responses. So from a client's point of view, the visit isn't simply the time in the clinic. It starts when they book the appointment. It's getting the cat in the carrier, the trip to the clinic, the time at the clinic, but also once they're back home and reintroducing them to the home, the effect of of the time out of the territory with respect to other animals or who are there, maybe even children, disrupted harmony, as well as the odors that the cat's bringing from the clinic. So all of these things are really important to consider when we're thinking about making for a cat-friendly situation. So the final piece I want to talk about here is how to bring cats back to the practice, how to bring cats and their people back to the practice. We want to create a culture of lifelong preventive health care. It's super important to be providing preventive health care for indoor cats as well as for outdoor cats. We want to look at tailoring health care recommendations for each patient, for each individual. We want to make sure that we're meeting the unmet needs in unmet family members by performing a household pet inventory, and we want to improve the recall rate by creating a new culture of regular visits in adult cats. So at every visit, we want to ask, does Joey go outside or have contact with other animals, rather than just asking, does he go outside? Because he may have contact with other animals in a less obvious way. This is helpful for us planning and making recommendations for vaccinations. We also want to ask, who else lives with you and Joey? That's another way of eliciting similar information. Another question we want to ask at every single visit is, has your cat urinated or defecated somewhere in the house other than in the litter box? This is possibly the most important question we could ask. And we need to do this at every visit because if a client says, yeah, occasionally, but it's not a big deal, We need to stop right then and have a conversation because by the time it is a big deal for that client, that cat has urinated or defecated inappropriately 736 times and the client has had it. It's crossed the threshold, the relationship, the bond is broken, the client feels untrusting of the cat and they want it fixed yesterday 
or the cat's going to not live with them anymore. And so if we can pick this up before it upsets the client, we can do an awful lot of good. Another consideration is, can we justify routine parasite control for indoor cats, for indoor pets? Should we use parasite control to try to increase cat preventive care visits? Absolutely, because indoor pests transmit diseases, and some of those indoor pests include houseflies and cockroaches. They can spread Toxicara. Mosquitoes, they don't respect doors and windows. They transmit heartworm. Fleas, they come indoors. Even ticks can come indoors if the people or the dogs bring them back into the house. Those fleas and ticks can spread zoonotic diseases as well as things that make the cats themselves sick. As I said in the first episode, the best window of opportunity for us to interact with clients is at the first visit because 83% of people bring their cat to the vet within the first year of adopting them. But then we don't see them until they become ill. So we need to change that culture. How do we keep them coming back? Well, we want to have a first year of life program or an other wellness program. That first year of life program may include an initial physical examination, nutritional and behavior consultation, as all of the SCRCP or DRCPs that the cat needs, plus the exam at those times. FELV vaccines, the first, the second, as well as an FELV FIV test. Rabies, as is regionally appropriate. Broad-spectrum dewormer, given at the appropriate intervals, and then initially three, five, seven, nine weeks, and then monthly. Tattooing, neutering, and microchipping. And if need be, repeating an FELV FIV test. All positives, of course, need to be confirmed. The cost of this program, the way I did it in my practice, is I added it all up together and then took 10% off. Whatever percent you want to take off, the point being that they pay for it all up front or they pay for half of it now and half of it at the second visit. If they don't, it goes back to the a la carte cost. So what we did with neutering was pay the cost of a castration, add it together, and divide by two. And that's what the cost was that was included in the first year of life program. Additionally, and this is really important, the first year of life program also includes a nine-month nutrition check. Because at that nine-month nutrition check, we can see if that cat is starting to get overweight and deal with it before it becomes a problem. That appointment is just about nutrition and anything else the client mentions, but that's the purpose of that nutrition. And the other key piece of this program is that the year one exam and boosters. So a year after the cat was last seen for vaccines, that appointment is pre-booked for that exam and the boosters. And that gets us over the stopping after the first year, and then maybe we'll see them when we see them down the road. If we can get people into the habit of bringing them back, it's really useful. There are all kinds of other possible programs. They're in the resources that you can see, disease screening at different ages, life stage, preventive care and disease screening, as well as mature and senior cat preventive care programs. So this is all things that can be done. Something that our dentists have always done, or as long as I've been around, have always done, is they pre-book the next appointment, and I don't know why we don't. It can be changed, for heaven's sakes, but whether it's two weeks from now or a year from now, pre-book it. Get it on the books and then remind people, and they can change the date as need be, but that will make huge steps towards creating a culture of lifelong preventive health care. 
When examining a cat, I also like to send home a report card, and essentially it's just my examination sticker or page photocopied for them, which tells them exactly what I found, as well as the weight, the percent weight change, body condition score, muscle condition score, recommendations, and this then gives them something to take home, which is useful. I alluded earlier to performing a pet inventory. And this came to light with a client of mine where he was absolutely A-type client, wonderful cat, loved seeing him. He did everything we told him to. He was always on time, etc. And one time we asked him, do you have any other pets at home? And he got out his phone and showed us pictures of five other cats. This man had been coming for years. I had no idea he had five other cats. So we talked about those cats. And without that question, I wouldn't have known that. So do you have any other pets at home? It's a really good strategy as well. Finally, home care. We want to explain clearly. We want to provide verbal as well as visual aids. And anything we're wanting them to do, we want them to see how it's done, both on a handout but also watching us do it. We want to see them do it, such as with pretend insulin, i.e. saline in a syringe, so we know they can do it, and sub-Q fluids and giving a pill with a treat. We want to make sure they can do it, and then we want them to teach somebody else. So see, do, show. If we're sending home recommendations for a whole lot of treatments, then we need to prioritize them and say, these three are the most important. These have to be done. These others are also important, but make sure you get these top three done. So we want to reinforce with videos, take-home materials. I like sending home links to YouTube videos or emailing them because the YouTube videos are often less professional but more real something they can relate to better about how to give fluids or do blood glucose checks or those sorts of things. So if we can address these challenges, educating clients about the subtle signs of sickness, teaching them about the need for preventive health care, reducing the stress, making the trip to the clinic less stressful, reducing the stress for everybody in the clinic, and that will also make us more comfortable with seeing these patients we're otherwise uncomfortable with. We can really raise the bar and improve the care for cats in a more cat-friendly way. In the resources, you'll find a list of the AFP, the ISFM, Catalyst Council, Cat Healthy, and Have We Seen Your Cat Lately, and I hope you find those to be of use. And with that, we must conclude today's Vet Polio podcast on how to reduce stress in the clinic. We hope that you've enjoyed this fourth and final episode in our Purring Medicine podcast series. On behalf of Vetfolio and Merck Animal Health, thank you for participating in today's podcast. <laughs>